You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. In elementary school, I lived in a suburb of Los Angeles, and five days a week, our family commuted to work and school, an hour each morning, an hour each night. We spent a lot of time in the car together, a big old dark brown Ford LTD with two long bench seats covered in shiny dark brown fabric. This was our second home. We listened to the radio to pass the time, KFI, and we learned all the words to the top hits of the 70s, but it was still pretty tedious because I spent so much of my weekday in that car waiting for time to pass and traffic to clear. But one drive home stands out as different. We must have been giving a coworker a ride or something because my mom was in the back seat with my sister and me. I sat in the middle on the hump, and as we inched along the busy freeway in the dark, my dad driving and talking with his buddy up front, it was somehow quiet way in the back where we were, and time wrapped around us in a peaceful way. I leaned into my mom, my head on her arm, and my sister leaned onto me, and my mom began to sing softly a song she had learned from her own mom, I knew, a lullaby my sister and I had heard maybe a dozen times before. It went, The stars, one and all, once gave a great ball in the Milky Way up in the sky. They invited the earth to partake of their mirth. And here she began acting out the story. But she feared to go climbing so high, so high. But she feared to go climbing so high. And then she sang about the moon whistling. (whistles) And the comet keeping time with its tail like this. And the very best part came when she acted out the stars as they pranced and they danced by moving her fingers up and down our arms. There we were, all of us, cozy in the car, but also floating in the Milky Way, snuggled on our bench seat with its prickly fabric, not so unlike a pew, And we are a sweet little piece of something so much larger than ourselves, singing. Singing a song that I would one day sing to my own two children until they got too old for lullabies, but I know they know it by heart. It is etched so deeply in my own heart that I find myself singing it under my breath, driving on hot summer nights or in the middle of the night in any season when I find it hard to sleep. Come, let us worship together.
What I know about being inclusive, crossing from culture to culture, learning the language of diversity, is that it's the work of a lifetime. It's hard to accept people who are not like you, who don't talk the way you do, or believe the things you believe, or dress, or vote as you do. It's even harder to appreciate them for the things about them that are not like you, to find them interesting and fun, to enjoy the learning that's part of the experience, and to acknowledge, finally, that you may have to agree to disagree. The truth is this. If there is no justice, there will be no peace. We can read Thoreau and Emerson to one another, quote Rilke and Alice Walker and Howard Thurman, and think good and noble thoughts about ourselves. But if we cannot bring justice into the small circle of our own individual lives, we cannot hope to bring justice to the world. And if we do not bring justice to the world, none of us is safe and none of us will survive. Nothing that Unitarian Universalists need to do is more important than making justice real here where we are. So much undone, so much to do, so much to heal in us and the world, so much to acquire a meal, a healthy body, a fit one, a lover, a job, a better job, proof we have and are enough just around the corner of now. And up against it, the reality of all that falls short and the limits of today. We honor the limits. If your body won't do what it used to, for right now, let it be enough. If your mind won't stop racing or can't think of the word, let it be enough. If you are here utterly alone and in despair, be all that here with us. If today you cannot sing because your throat hurts or you don't have the heart for music, be silent. When the offering plate goes around, if you don't have money to give or the heart to give, let it pass. The world won't stop spinning on our axis if you don't rise to all occasions today. Love won't cease to flow in your direction. Your heart won't stop beating. All hope won't be lost. You are part of the plan for this world's salvation. Of that, I have no doubt. The world needs its oceans of people striving to be good, to carry us to the shores of hope, and wash fear from the beachheads, and cleanse all wounds so they can heal. But oceans are big. And I am sure there are parts that don't feel up to the task of the whole some days. Rest, if you must, then, like the swimmer lying on her back who floats, or the hawk carried on cushions of air. Rest in pews made to hold weary lives, in space carved out for the doing of nothing much but being. Perhaps then you will feel in your bones, in your weary heart, the aching, healing sense that this is enough, even this, that we are enough, you are enough, enough. Faith development is all we do. Unitarian Universalism is the faith we teach. The congregation is the curriculum. So says Connie Goodbread, 
a credentialed religious educator who consults about healthy congregations and transformation with the Unitarian Universalist Association. Her words remind us that faith development is not just for children. In fact, it is a thread woven through all our church activities. Faith development is all we do. Unitarian Universalism is the faith we teach. The congregation is the curriculum. Her words have me wondering, what are we teaching here, on purpose and by accident? If we kept this idea in the front of our minds that the congregation is the curriculum, what might we do differently? And if the, con if the curriculum is embedded in every interaction and experience we co-create here, how can we best use it to equip ourselves to manifest the sweetest, most dangerous promises of our UU faith? Before I go too far, I want to define faith and faith development. Today, I'll be working from the definition of faith that says faith is the awareness we have of our relationships with ourselves, other people, the world, and the holy. So faith is the combination of my awareness of how I relate to myself, how I make sense of and understand myself as a being who exists, plus my awareness of my relatedness to other people and my sense of our connections, combined with my awareness of my relationship to the natural world, how I experience myself as connected to nature, and finally, my awareness of my relationship to something larger than myself, be that God or the holy or the story of the universe or humanity. And faith development is the work of awakening our awareness of those relationships, deepening our appreciation of those connections, and culti cultivating a sense of meaning out of it all. There are other terms that are closely related to faith development, like spiritual development or religious education that mean much the same thing, but Connie Goodbread calls it faith development. Faith development is all we do, she says. That moment I had in the car with my family was absolutely a moment of faith development. It helped plant in me a sense of being able to trust and rest into my relationships and my place in the natural order of the universe. It wasn't planned. There was no formal curriculum, but faith development was happening anyway in the back seat of an LTD on the 101 freeway. A lot of the messages in our UU worship and in small groups and religious education classes encourage us to be thoughtful and intentional about how we relate to ourselves, one another, the larger world, and the holy. We remind ourselves of our relatedness on purpose to encourage one another to spiritual growth as our fourth UU principle calls us to do. But Goodbread says faith development is all we do. She's cautioning us to be aware of what we're steeping in by virtue of the structures we have consciously and unconsciously set up. The culture, the norms, the shape of how we are together is teaching us. The congregation is exercising particular spiritual muscles in us as we navigate through it, as we build and maintain it. So the question should always be, is it building up the spiritual muscles we want to strengthen? And I would answer, in many ways, I think yes. We, children, youth, and adults, 
have rich opportunities for faith development through our rituals and interactions at church. We share joys and concerns with one another. We lift up the cycle of life, recognizing that we are all part of that cycle. We greet one another and share a bit of what is in our hearts in the moment if we feel able to. We join our voices in song. We join hands to experience ourselves as one body before we part. To be even more meta, though, we come to church. We don't just stay home to listen to the podcast. And that reminds us that we are in this together, all part of the ocean, and that connecting with one another has meaning. But it's legitimate to be cautious about the impact of our participation at church on our faith development. Earlier this year, for example, I decided I wanted to get stronger by taking up jogging again. But instead of helping me get stronger, I pretty quickly developed some very sore hips and painful knees. It had been mm, 15, 20 years since I'd last run. So I adjusted the frequency of my runs, the distance, the pace, but jogging plus aging joints was not adding up to the results I was looking for. It took me a while to understand and accept that because I had such a strong association between jogging and physical health in my mind, regardless of the obvious evidence that it was not doing good things for my body. I clearly needed a different form of exercise. Sometimes we think we're developing something positive, but we're really training ourselves into harmful habits. Lately, I've been wondering whether our best intentions for the religious education of our children and youth might be having an impact on our collective faith development that we didn't intend. It seems the harder we work to curate and create relevant, engaging religious education classes, the more we convince ourselves that age-separated church programming is the most important and most effective mode of faith development for people under 19. I personally believe we have some amazing religious education curricula for youth. Of course I do, but that's not the whole story. When we come to church and separate by age, we pay a cost. We pull kids out of multi-generational worship, where they might witness other children serving as chalice lighters and learn that people of all ages can touch the sacred and lead worship. They might hear the minister incorporate a baby's happy noises into the message of their sermon and learn that joy is part of a robust communal spiritual life. They might lay their head on a parent's arm as the congregation sings Spirit of Life and lay down that experience in their memory for life. Not to mention the impact of age-separated programming on adults. Part of the work of church is knitting us back together, making us whole. Sometimes it knits us back together on an individual basis. Like Vanessa Southern says, these pews are made to hold weary lives in spaces carved out for the doing of nothing much when your wounds need time to heal. We all need rest. And sometimes church knits us back together as a whole into a community where there is room for everyone, where the light in each heart is recognized, valued, protected. One of the visionary goals as a church we have is this. First Universalist is a multiracial, multicultural, and intergenerational faith community of mutual caring and support where 
people bring all of who they are and welcome each other with joy. The Unitarian Universalist Association's Leadership Council wrote aspirationally of our congregations being places where, quote, all people are welcomed as blessings and the human family lives whole and reconciled. Mm. I know our hearts long to create and dwell in that place. And we know it takes work to get there. We are working hard together. Now, I'm reminded of something I noticed in my former career as a marriage and family therapist. One common mistake new couples therapists make is that they spend the whole therapy hour helping the couple get along. They steer away from the hard issues, thinking that if the couple avoids conflict in the session, that's a success. And then they give the couple homework. Go home and talk about your problems for 30 minutes every night and come back and tell me how it went. Well, I'll tell you how it went. It was a train wreck. That's why the couple came to therapy. When they talk about their problems on their own, they don't get anywhere. They need their therapist to bring the hard issues up in the hour a week they're together so they can develop new skills for getting unstuck and not going off the rails. So, do you see where I'm going with this? Church isn't just the place where we talk about how we wish we could be when we leave. On Sunday, we come to get support and skills and to do hard work, too, because we're trying to grow our souls and change the world. It's uncharted territory. We need each other's help, and we need practice. I don't think it's an accident that our visionary goal lists these three things together, multiracial, multicultural, intergenerational. We understand, as Reverend Teresa Soto says, all of us need all of us to make it. We all need church to be a place where we sense the wholeness of our fragmented experience, where we are reminded of other ages and stages in our past and we hope ahead in our future. That's what being in multi-generational community does for us. So next year, we'll be moving to more frequent multi-generational worship with the kids joining us for the first part of the service every other week instead of once a month so we can practice being together. Should we just get rid of all age segregation at church in favor of being one big happy family all the time? Actually, I don't think so, but we do need to be very intentional about the ways and the frequency with which we are doing two important things, being together as a whole congregation and gathering in smaller groups based on life stage, needs, interests, and identities. This is what Paula Cole Jones, the founder of Adore, a dialogue on race and ethnicity, and past president of DRUM, Diverse and Revolutionary UU Multicultural Ministries, calls Building a Community of Communities. Cole Jones has a long history of leadership in our movement, and she observes that the metaphors we use for describing our church communities have a big impact on how we engage and what spiritual muscles we develop. Cole Jones points out that a common model is seeing church as a family, a place where we help each other, where we're connected by relationships that aren't easily dissolved. But she says the church as family metaphor has serious limitations. Family is just too simple a way of thinking of ourselves. 
It doesn't give enough weight to the dynamics of power and oppression in and outside our congregations. And it compares us to a system in which lineage is narrow, as Paula Cole Jones says. Spoken or unspoken, we all know who we can bring home and who we can't. We need a bigger, better metaphor. She suggests we set out to make our congregation a community of communities. There is, of course, the larger community, which in our case is First Universalist Church, and within it, there are smaller communities. And at first, I thought she was just reminding us again that we should all join a circle or a small group in order to make deeper con connections in a smaller setting. But that isn't what Cole Jones is talking about with her community of communities metaphor. She's talking about those smaller communities that need to find one another at church in order for their members to have a sense of belonging, in order to have access to church resources, in order to ensure their needs are centered. In a community of communities, for these reasons, children have their own spaces and curriculum during some of the time they're at church. So do people of color and indigenous folks and elders. Communities within community gather for different reasons in different ways on their own schedule and terms, choosing their own priorities and their own leaders. In this past year, I got to be part of a community that emerged when I invited folks to envision a more welcoming, affirming church for families of kids with disabilities or on the spectrum. We came together to get some work done, but it very quickly became clear to the 10 or so of us who gathered that we were a community within the community. The group was primarily made up of parents who wanted to connect with other parents, to share stories and offer resources, wisdom, affirmation, and mutual support. We needed each other, and we'd been at church too long without having found this smaller, essential community. Once we were connected in community, we were able to come up with lots of ways to make religious education more inclusive and accessible. But once we got going, we weren't just talking about teaching methods or curriculum for kids. We were dreaming about how First Universalist could become a place where this community of kids and families was warmly wanted, valued, heard, and centered. We imagined together a church where a family whose child might sometimes be loud in service would consistently be held with love, not just when they happened to have understanding neighbors in the pew, but because we had a church-wide understanding that all kinds of kids are valued here and that conformity is not a UU value. And for those kids with sensory issues for whom being in the service is too much input, we imagined an alternate sensory-friendly space, which it turns out would be an asset not just to kids and their parents, but also to other adults who sometimes need that alternative to being in a sanctuary full of people. So when we talk about building a community of communities, we begin to see that this model really takes the focus off the needs of the individual, which in turn helps us understand the importance of our relatedness. We focus not on the needs of the individual who says, but I don't like sitting next to kids in service. Instead, we focus on the communities, the community of children, the community of families, the community of people with disabilities, including the community of people who are hard of hearing, and figure out how to structure and be in the larger community together.
And the larger community then has the opportunity to do the good, hard work of practicing authentic wholeness, using Sunday as a time to show up and embrace the messy, complicated, justice-loving, beloved community. I would say that being part of a community of communities offers the best opportunities for faith development for the whole congregation we could hope to offer. When we set ourselves to the task of building a community of communities, we deepen our awareness of our relationship with ourselves, with others, with how we're connected. We train ourselves to ask questions like, where is the trans community here? Where is the black community? Where are the Jewish UUs? Where are the immigrants? Where are the people with stories of adoption? Where are those struggling with addiction? Where are the multiracial families? Where are those struggling economically? Who is without a community within our community? And how can we support and resource those communities so that they are vibrant and we are whole? As we move away from making decisions based on the needs of the individuals in our congregation, we shift the balance of power, too. A community of communities means that we move away from the seductive simplicity of majority rules. When the majority rules, we're usually going to make decisions that meet the needs of those who are part of the dominant or majority culture. Others are put in the position of having to appeal to the better nature of the majority in order to get their needs met. That's not healthy or equitable. Paula Cole Jones says, quote, in a community of communities, it's not survival of the fittest, but the thriving and survival of all communities. There's a word for this kind of decision-making that might happen in a community of communities, sociocracy. In a sociocracy, the needs of the various communities matter more than the needs of the individual or even the majority. The group sets up structures and practices to ensure that communities are prioritized in their decision-making processes. They arrive at decisions together, relying on listening and creativity, and moving at what Adrienne Marie Brown would call the speed of trust. Here's another awesome potential of her model. Cole Jones points out that it is much more likely that we will dismantle white supremacy if we have other structures to put in place. I got some insight into this through a Facebook group I'm in called Twin Cities Perennial Exchange, where people share plants and tips on growing things. If you post a question in this group, you will get answers. Gardeners have opinions. So recently, someone posts this. Quote, let's talk weeds. For those who have expansive gardens or even little gardens, how often are you weeding? Well, there were 141 comments with advice all over the map. You can make your own weed killer, said one. You should weed every morning. I weed once a week. Just use Roundup. It's the only thing that works. It starts getting a little heated, as you can imagine. And then someone posts... I limit the amount of free dirt space in my gardens. If weeds don't get sun and space, they can't grow. I love this. Take out the weeds and plant more of the beauty you long to see in the world. We can do this. Let's grow a community of communities. Let's build new communities where we need them. Let's support communities that are not our own, but are related to us. 
Let's crowd out white supremacy culture with vibrant communities. We create the congregation, and the congregation creates us. The congregation is the curriculum. Let's fill up our garden with more of what we want to grow in ourselves and in the world. Reverend Natalie Fenimore says about Unitarian Universalism, quote, I've stopped saying when people come in the door, come on in, this is great, you belong. I tell them, you are entering a hard faith. This is hard work. That's the church I want for us, one that works us hard in the right ways to become more connected, more aware of our relatedness, more dangerous to the status quo. May it be so, and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.